And we're back. This is Model Behavior. I am Michael G. Gable, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. I am a full-time working model, and I like to interview models, photographers, anyone related to the industry for tips and tricks and ways to dispel some of the uh, negative stereotypes us models carry. But I also like to talk to people that I just find to be creatively interesting and people I think are living a model life, or at least trying to live a model life. And you may have noticed that I've been absent for the past couple weeks. You may not have noticed, but I generally like to release a podcast every Thursday. But fact of the matter is, I've been sick. I got a rough, rough cold that seems to be going around LA right now. And when I get a cold, I tend to get a sinus infection. It's all very sexy. But um, apart from not wanting to (laughs) spread my germs to some unsuspecting podcast guest, I also just didn't sound good on uh, the mic. I can't imagine that you wanted to hear my sniffling and snorting and congested voice. And I also just had to work. I, you know, I don't get paid sick days. I had a couple shoots the past couple of weeks. I had a lot of auditions and I had to make them work. So I had to conserve my energy. I did some, did some really cool stuff. I, I did one commercial that I can't say too much about it, but it involved night vision goggles and playing baseball. So, I mean, as someone who's seen Jurassic Park, night vision goggles are a dream come true. And then I did some stuff for Nordic Track, which is cool because those sort of fitness workout gear brands are in the fitness modeling community, sort of the pinnacle. It's always great to be the fitness model who is the aspirational person working out on one of those machines in a commercial. Of course, when I did the commercial, I was the relatable guy who was standing next to the Nordic Track official trainer who, I don't know, maybe was 2% body fat and just made me look like a relatable guy. So it put me in my place. And that's always good. You know, you gotta, you don't want to get too big of a head, especially in this industry, you know. Ego is the enemy, as Ryan Holiday would say. And I talked about Ryan Holiday on the last episode with Michael Huth and his book, Stillness is the Key. And I've been rereading that book, actually, with my girlfriend because I listened to it in an audiobook and I wanted her to read it because I think it's important as she's the CEO of a company and has a lot of stress in her life. And I think that book unlocks a lot of the secrets as to how to find mental and physical and emotional space in the chaotic life that we've created for ourselves in the 21st century. And I I can sort of fall into this trap of trying to be overly productive. Um, There are times when I need to watch the same episodes of The Office that I've watched probably 10 times before and just sort of numb out and and zone out. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. But a lot of times I also try to double down on what I'm doing. If I'm going for a hike, I'll listen to a podcast. If I'm in the car, I'm listening to an audiobook. If I'm working on a serial killer, I'm watching Netflix or also listening to a podcast. And, you know, from my psychology classes in college, I learned that multitasking is kind of a myth. You know, you can do it, but something's suffering. You're never as good of a multitasker as you think you are. And when you focus on one thing, not only does that thing have your full attention, but 
it also allows your mind to do some weird things. And I'm not talking so much about doing something that's very mentally taxing, but there are these low impact activities like walking or working on a serial killer, something that's very repetitive and almost meditative where your brain, and you can fact check me on this, goes into what I believe is an alpha state. And it just starts to sort of work in the background. You know, if I go for a hike or a walk with my dog, or if I'm working on a serial killer and I'm not listening to anything, I'm just sort of in the moment, in the task at hand, finding that flow state, my brain starts to just go. And it's almost like meditation in the fact that I can watch my thoughts and get into the very heady idea of like, well, if I'm watching my thoughts, who's thinking the thoughts and, you know, all that stuff. But you know, when I worked in advertising and I had an internship in advertising in college and I read a book about it and they said one of the best ways to solve a creative problem or a block is to just not think about it, do something else. It's sort of that idea of when you're trying to think of someone's name or trying to remember something's on the tip of your tongue, as soon as you let it go and stop thinking about it, your brain does the work and it will solve the problem for you. And that's what happens when I go for a walk and I don't do anything and I just sort of let my mind wander and have that sort of daydreamy mentality. And if you don't have a problem you're trying to solve, your your brain will start to just develop ideas. And that reminds me a lot of a, a TED talk I love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yes, no less than the author of Eat, Pray, Love. But she released this TED talk in 2009 called Your Elusive Creative Genius. And it's a, it's a good addendum to the war of art in terms of tapping into um, what Stephen Pressfield would call the muse. But it's sort of seeing creativity as something that comes from somewhere else, from the ether, and is channeled through you when you show up to the computer or you just allow yourself the space mentally and emotionally to think. And it's also a an interesting antidote to narcissism because... If you do something impressive, it's not necessarily just you. It's something beyond you. And in this Trump age of peak narcissism, that's probably something we all need. Um, but she talks about this poet, Ruth Stone, who would go work in the fields as, I don't know, a kid or an adult. Who knows back in the day. But she would be working in the fields doing this sort of repetitive laborious task and a poem would come to her and she would have to run home as fast as she could to get this poem down because it had arrived fully formed and if she didn't get home in time it would disappear and she thought it went off you know as like a gust of wind to the next poet and I think that's a really cool way to look at inspiration it's something that you can set yourself up for you can be prepared for but you have to catch it when it comes and I've been trying to practice more of the things that Ryan Holiday talks about in Stillness is the Key and just giving myself the space and time to be still. And it's working. It's um, My mind is going. And the other day I was driving to this Nordic track shoot at five in the morning and I could have put on a podcast. I could have listened to music. I have my Dawn Patrol playlist that I usually listen to when I have my early morning drives, but I decided to do nothing. And within this 30 minute drive, my brain started writing something. And by the time I got to set, you know, I checked in with the second AD and I got to the holding area and I, you know, connected with my quote unquote wife on set. And, you know, we caught up cause we'd actually worked together before. And then she got taken to hair and makeup and I had some time alone and I 
just caught this thing that was in my head and I, I wrote it down and it was this essay. Um, I don't know who, what for. I have no professor that's asking me to write an essay, but I wrote it. And it's interesting. It's, um, it's something very important to me. Some of you may or may not know that I, I published a book about domestic violence in 2014 called She Can Fly. And I wrote it with my nanny who raised me as a child. And it's her story authored by me. And it's it's tricky because that book is something that is probably the most successful and important thing I'll ever do creatively in my life. It's um, It's a perfect circle of creativity and redemption and emotional vulnerability and I'm so proud of it and it's it's done a lot it's you know it's gone through the women's support networks as a cautionary tale and a resource and I don't make any money off it anything we make off book sales I um, put into just donating copies to women's shelters and schools and other centers of resource but I struggle with promoting it because there's all these stereotypes about being a male feminist and like, is it genuine? Why are you a male feminist? Are you trying to impress people? And, you know, feminism isn't actually about putting women above men. It's about putting women and men on an equal playing field. And I don't want to label myself as anything. I don't, I, I just, I want to be an advocate of domestic violence because the awareness is so essential. In the past few years with the Me Too movement, sexual assault has really gotten its day in the sun, and that's, a, that's an amazing thing because sexual assault also plays a large part in um, Carrie and I's book. But domestic violence is still something that's happening on a scale that's epidemic. And I, I don't, <laughs> that's not hyperbole. One in four women and one in seven men are victims of domestic violence and 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 that's not just bullying that's that's defined by beating burning or strangling by statistics on the ncadv.org which is a huge domestic violence resource and that's terrifying a quarter of women and you know more than 15% of men are victims of this sort of treatment like what are we doing this is this is supposed to be this woke generation this is supposed to be a thing of the past and you know, when Carrie went through her orde- her ordeal, it was a time when there weren't women's shelters and cops weren't trained in how to deal with these issues. And she didn't have the resources she needs. But now those resources are available and it's still prevalent. It's still on the rise. I mean, an, an article from the New York Times in April says that murders by intimate partners are on an upward trend, which is horrifying. You know, what's the point of all this cultural advance if we're literally killing the people we love the most. You know, what are we doing? There are 20,000 phone calls a day placed to domestic violence hotlines. This is silly, to to be honest. And I I want to do more. I, I, I've always maintained that, you know, domestic violence isn't a women's problem. It's a men's problem. You know, with all the resources in the world, we can help women who are victims of domestic violence, but we're just treating the symptoms. We're not treating the cause. And the cause is shitty dudes who have poor role models or entitled ideas about the power dynamic between a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Or, And it's not just heterosexual relationships. It can go from female to male. It can go from female to female. It can go from male to male. It's actually very prevalent in the 
in the gay and lesbian community. So this is just something that needs to stop. It needs to end. And so this podcast is just going to be me. Um, it's a, it's a departure from what I normally do, but it is the end of October. It will be October 31st when I release this. And I don't know if any of you knew this. I actually had to double check it, which is embarrassing, but uh, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And in the same vein as me wanting to do more and, you know, feeling like I don't have a voice in a, a matter that I'm so concerned with, you know, I'm getting in it at the 11th hour, but it's important. And I want to talk about it this week. And next week, we'll be back to talking to some some guests about modeling and bullshit. But this is important to me. And it all circles back to the the idea behind this podcast. You know, I think it's Socrates who said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. And the only thing I know is that I can be a better person. You know, I think I'm a, I'm a good person most of the time. I'm definitely a better person than I used to be when I was a kid. I... <laughs> I don't know, I had my issues, but I, I prided myself on my ability to lie and how good I was at lying, which in a weird way feeds back to acting and modeling because it's all just lying for the camera, but that's an appropriate venue. And now I, I don't lie. I, I try my very best to always be honest in every situation. And, you know, I say I want to be a better person because I think that's that's something that doesn't have an end point. There's no... You can always continue to be better. You can always have more model behavior. And the other part of that is that, as I talked about uh, in the last episode with Michael Huth, I, I find Ryan Holiday's writing to be so inspiring and so important, but I also find it to be a little prescriptive and um, distant. And... I want the personal anecdotes. That's why I talk to people. That's why I love people's stories. I want to hear about what they did in their life and how they changed and how they grew and how they got to where they are, whether it's professionally or personally or emotionally or psychologically. I don't care. I want to learn your story because I think there's a million ways to get better. And if you can just take bits and pieces from every little person's story that you hear, you can grow so much in your own life. And there's a quote I really like that's, whatever you do, your job is to tell your story. And, you know, there are parts of this podcast where I could just share part of my story. And I've had some feedback that people really like that part of it. And I want to share more of my story. And it's, it's the only story I have. And it's been, and it's been written in various ways on several different platforms, but it's all I got. So I want to share um, this thing I wrote when I was driving to set at 5 a.m., you know, it came out of me and I didn't really edit it. I read it to my girlfriend to see if she was comfortable with me even sharing it with the world because as it normally is the case, the things that need to be shared with the world most are the things that make you most uncomfortable. So this is pretty terrifying for me. I've been putting it off all day, but this podcast is just going to be me reading this essay or whatever it is. And if you like it, I don't know, let me know. If you want to hear more, let me know. But it's just something that I wanted to say and it's something that I wanted to, to tell and share. And so that's all we're going to do this week. I'm going to share that with you. And then next week we'll be back with um, some amazing guests. So without further ado, here's this.
This is called Boys Grow Up. My dad doesn't think I have his hands. I certainly have his name. He's Michael George Gable Sr. and I'm Michael George Gable Jr. And I can now confidently and thankfully say I got his hairline. His height too. Almost. But he doesn't think I got his hands. He thinks my fingers are too tapered. A sure sign they came from the artists on my mother's side of the family. To be fair, his digits are thicker than mine. Maybe that comes with age. At 32, I'm roughly the age he was when I was born. It's hard to tell in the framed photo sitting on my desk. My grandfather and him on the brown leather Chesterfield sofa from my childhood. My grandfather in his cardigan and Nike running shoes. Every inch Mr. Rogers. Next to my dad in his white jeans and purple polo shirt. Mustache and Rolex. A daddy Freddie Mercury holding out his hand for me, and diapers on his lap to high-five. Regardless, I want to have my dad's hands, not only because as a surgeon he holds in them both strength and precision, but also because they're gentle. My dad has a temper, to be sure. I imagine a younger version of his fists would fit the dents I left in the drywall of my room as a teenager, but I never knew him to punch a wall, so I can't compare the imprints like a tourist measuring their palms against those of a celebrity they admire in the concrete outside Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Once, when my mother got him in her emotional missile lock, he did kick over a floral print ottoman, which sent a Domino's pizza flying, and ended up with us all in the emergency room where my mom worked, looking at an x-ray and laughing together about how someone could break their big toe doing something so silly. We never did eat that pizza. Sausage, onion, and green peppers with black olives and mushrooms on one side, which my mother insisted on and my father hated. It wasn't long before the house was divided like that thin crust. With divorce papers filed, my mother set up a bedroom on the other side of the house at the advisement of her lawyer, so she wouldn't lose stake in the assets. My custody was divided already, too, but since my mother didn't like putting me to bed in my bedroom so close to the master, where my dad still slept on her nights, she set up another bedroom for me, closer to hers. It sounds luxurious to have so many unused rooms, but the house never felt more confining. And when my nanny Carrie, the only constant in my chaotic 10-year-old life, was arrested and taken away on a fugitive warrant, I was confused and lost and angry, and I burned the house down. Not on purpose, but maybe. It was going to explode one way or another. I simply lit the match. 17 years later, I published a book, She Can Fly, reconstructing why my nanny had been arrested on that winter morning before the fire. The answers were simple. Domestic violence, prison, rape escape. Simple, but not easy. Not easy for me to write, and certainly not easy for her to live through, or relive through, but simple and, unfortunately, common. While Carrie's cautionary tale represents just how bad the cycle of abuse can become, it is a story that continues to pervade our woke society, hiding like shouting behind closed doors or bruises beneath makeup. Sadly, to this day, so many women become statistics. And though my mother was not one of them, in the custody battle that followed the divorce proceedings, she claimed she was. I could attest to the gentleness of my father's hands, that he never laid them on my mother or me, but at 10 years old and stuck in the middle, I wasn't a reliable witness. Carrie, on the other hand, was. And in what seems like a divine twist of fate, she was released from prison just before the case over who would get me went to trial. Her name was added to the witness docket at the 11th hour, but she never gave her testimony. My mother settled outside of court, and I began to float. I floated from my mom's house to my dad's house, from friend group to friend group, from therapist to therapist, from self-medication to self-medication. I got into an Ivy League school four times. I got kicked out three. 
Then I floated my way across the world, ending up at someone else's dream job in Amman, Jordan. A white kid from the Midwest who became a white kid in New England was now a white kid in the Middle East. My privilege meant nothing when I walked the five miles to work and back each day. The streets were not pedestrian-friendly. The traffic laws were more suggestions. No one walked in Amman. But I did. Alone. Unhappy. Lost. I started listening to podcasts as I crossed traffic, mostly comedy, blocking out my sandy world and looking for color in between my ears. The podcasts led to audiobooks, mostly self-help and spirituality, stoicism and zen. I meditated. I still self-medicated. But then something started to happen. I cooked. I cleaned. I worked out. I took care of myself. I stopped lying. I started letting people in. I began to grow up. I moved on from being a lost boy in the Middle East to being a boy in the middle of Los Angeles. I got my first girlfriend at 24, and through that relationship, I continued to grow. There were growing pains for sure, but mostly growth from a boy into a man. I'm not alone anymore, and I'm happy more often than not, but it's still a process. I look at that photo on my desk of my grandfather and my father and me, and I think about the fact that that's what boys do. They grow up. It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it never stops happening, unless you let it. But otherwise, slowly, surely, boys will grow up. I'm now in a relationship with a beautiful woman who has three beautiful young daughters. I'm not a father myself, even though I sometimes play one on TV, in commercials and print ads, as a model now entering the young dad category. But I look at those three little angels I have the privilege of spending time with, pure and impressionable, and can't help but be overwhelmed by the responsibility I have the responsibility of modeling a healthy relationship for them. I'm not their father, and I never will be, but I am their mommy's boyfriend, a role most young girls don't get to see played. It's the role of a lifetime, not just for me, but hopefully for them too. When I have my hand up for the youngest of the girls, not quite two years old, to high five, I'm thankful I have my dad's hands, because I'm stronger than her, so I need to be gentler too, gentle with her growth and strong with mine, because that's what boys do. Boys grow up.